Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nip Tuck Coach Radio, your cosmetic surgery connection. Join cosmetic surgery Nip Tuck Coach, beauty expert, and author of Safety First, a consumer guide to cosmetic surgery, Michelle Garber, your host of the Nip Tuck Radio Show. Michelle's goal is to empower listeners and help them make safe cosmetic surgery procedure choices. This fun and lively show explores the world of beauty and cosmetic surgery and features expert guests on a variety of topics. No hype. Your host, Michelle Garber, is here today to help you navigate the confusing world of cosmetic surgery. Hi, everyone. This is Michelle Garber, and welcome to another week of Nip Tuck Coach Radio. I'm Michelle Garber, your host, and we are broadcasting live this morning from San Francisco. If you don't know me, I'm founder of Nip Tuck Coach, an independent cosmetic surgery consultancy and a patient advocate, helping you navigate through the confusing world of cosmetic procedures and surgery by keeping you safe and well-informed so that not only do you get a great result, but you get the best result and create more consumer awareness for safe cosmetic and plastic surgery procedures. I've written a comprehensive little guide called Safety First, the 10 Golden Rules for Safe Cosmetic Surgery, which you can download for free at my website at www.niptuckcoach.com. And I just read this morning an article about a 28-year-old New York girl who died from liposuction in the Dominican Republic. So people, please, please do your homework and only go to a board-certified plastic surgeon. Don't buy based on price and download my little guide. It'll, it'll help you with making that choice. So I'm excited today. My special guest is consumer and patient advocate and host of the syndicated radio show, The Ball Truth, Spencer Coburn. Hi, Spencer. Hey, are you Michelle. There? How are you? I'm great. I'm great. So Spencer is the founder and president of the American Hair Loss Association, the nation's foremost privately held consumer organization dedicated to educating the public, healthcare professionals, and the mainstream media about the emotionally devastating and life-altering disease of hair loss. Mr. Coburn is considered the country's most prominent and effective consumer patient advocate. He's the author of the groundbreaking international bestseller, The Ball Truth, the first complete guide to preventing and treating hair loss, which has become the most widely read consumer hair loss guide of all time. The Ball Truth has touched the lives of countless hair loss sufferers in search of real hope. And his second book, The Truth About Women's Hair Loss, What Really Works for Treating and Preventing Thinning Hair, has forever changed the way medicine and society looks at this neglected epidemic. Referred to as the father of consumer hair loss education, Mr. Coburn is a contributing editor of Consumer Digest magazine, WebND, has been featured in many publications and national media, and he's the founder and director of Consumer Patient Affairs of the International Alliance of hair restoration surgeons wow (laughs) that is a mouthful huh that is a mouthful you are an inspiration and such a great support system from people suffering from hair loss you know i listened to some of your shows before i when i knew that you were coming on 
And you have a huge following, and what you're doing is so important. I can only imagine how devastating hair loss can be for both men and women. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And, yeah, I mean, I think that people who aren't dealing with hair loss have absolutely no clue how difficult it is for for people, especially, I mean, it doesn't matter how old you are when you start to lose your hair, but especially people who begin to lose their hair at a younger age. And, you know, androgenetic alopecia, which is common male or female pattern baldness, really could happen at any point in someone's life. And for a lot of guys, especially, you know, about two-thirds of guys by the age of 35 start to lose their hair. You know, they have noticeable hair loss. And that can be life-changing. Well, I know that, you know, I've been coloring my hair for, oh, God, <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say how many years. <laughs> and um, and lately, it, it just looks like my part is getting a little more noticeable. And every time I go to my colorist, I say, am I losing hair? And she says, no, no, it's just the gray is so translucent. Right. And I keep looking at it, and, you know, I'd be devastated to think that my hair is thinning because my I've always had long hair, and once I cut my hair and a friend said, oh, you cut your status symbol, like I never realized people associated me with long hair. Well, I mean, you so, really are. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it really does kind of um, – uh, uh, dictate how people react to you. And it, it's something that is, it's really not talked about. Society doesn't allow us to, to really talk about the importance of our hair, especially guys. Now, as far as women's hair loss is concerned, about 40% of hair loss sufferers are women. So it's so much more common than people realize. And about 20% of women who lose their hair actually begin to lose their hair before the age of 25. So it is a huge silent epidemic of biblical proportions that, you know, you don't talk about, you don't see a lot of balding women out there because women, you know, they're, they're able to wear extensions and wigs and, and, and falls and hair pieces, and people kind of look at them as maybe they're just wearing that, you know, for, you know, for fashion, or it's, it's acceptable for women to wear hair. Um, yes, and but hair it's, extensions it's really a devastating very issue. popular. I'm sorry? Oh, I, I, I didn't know. I was going to say hair, hair extensions have become very popular. Um, Unfortunately, they but have. I know, yes, yes. Um, and I know that, like my husband, for instance, and he's not listening to this, so. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he's in his early 60s, and I noticed that he started thinning him back, and I would say something to him about the thinning, and he would tell me, oh, no, 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 I'm not thinning. Oh, no. Sure. <laughs> and I would like, touch it you know i said well you really are oh no no but, but think how lucky like, he is to be starting to thin in the 60s you know I, I i speak to guys who are 14 15 years old kids who start oh. the, the balding process right after puberty so oh, you know that that's you know it's, it's look it's devastating in any age because our appearance is changing you know when you see your appearance eroding along with your hairline it's it's something that you really can't articulate because, like I said, we're not really allowed to talk about it, especially as guys. We have to man up, and, you know, it's very common, and so on. Every woman says, oh, they always will point to, like, the good-looking bald guy, the Bruce Willis or the, the Michael Jordan, the guy or the rock, the guys that it works for. But for most guys, they do lose a few points in, on the attractive meter when they lose their hair. And for women, it is, I mean, it's a game-changer. 
Oh, yes, it's it's got to be devastating. So, um, so how did you get started in in all this? Well, when I was about 21 years old, I noticed that my hair was changing. And what I mean by that is it just I wasn't able to style it like I like I wanted to, and I just noticed more and more hair in the comb. And you know, when I was blow drying my hair, I was just seeing it all over the place. And you know, I wasn't prepared for hair loss because I didn't. You know, there wasn't a lot of hair loss in my family that I, that I knew about. My dad basically kept his hairline. He had a bald spot, but he combed his hair back. So to me, he wasn't bald. And I really didn't know, you know, my father's side of the family that well. They didn't stay in close contact. But after I started to investigate, he told me like everyone was bald in his side of the family. So of course I started to panic, and I decided to try to find. You got to realize this is like in the mid '80s. This is like 1986. So it was the dark ages of of hair restoration, surgical hair restoration, or all the products that are now available today. So. As I was doing my research, I realized that everything was just nonsense. I mean, I would go to the, the hair club, for instance. They were trying to sell me something that I later found out was a, was a wig, but they wouldn't explain to me what it was. And I had a, basically a full head of hair. And I was like, well, where are you going to put that? How are you going to, you know, I, I just want you to stop my hair loss. And I was going to doctors, and they wanted to. I remember this one really famous hair transplant surgeon in New York told me, to try a few hair transplants, just a few grafts. If I don't like them, I don't have to come back. Now, back then, they were these huge four-millimeter plugs. He would have given me this doll's head look, and you can't try it. Right, me. right, right. Reminds me, I had a friend that had plugs, and he looked his head looked like a Tressie doll. Do you remember those Tressie yeah. dolls? <laughs> but, but he was willing. This doctor was willing, and he actually told me, he goes, if you were my own son, I would suggest it. And at the time, I'm like, and I had to ask him again, where are you going to put it? My hair is just thinning it. My hairline hadn't started to recede yet and he said well we'll put it in between your hair just so no one notices as your hair progresses no one's going to notice that you're losing your hair now if i didn't have the wherewithal to step back and say there's something wrong with this my life would have been destroyed i would have been disfigured and i would have gone through something called shock loss which a lot of people don't know about so i kind of just stepped back and really assessed the field and realized especially at that time that it was just a minefield. It was mostly nonsense. Um, at, at the time, you know, when I did, was doing my research, it was like a $1.5 billion industry, and everything was basically bogus. Now it's a $3.5 billion industry, and 99% of the products and services are bogus. So I read an article in the New York Times, and I'll try to make this brief, about a drug that was being used for prostate enlargement. It, it, it was called Proscar. And they were, they were testing it for hair loss because they noticed that one of the side effects for the drug was that these guys who were on it, these older men, were starting to grow their hair back. So I found a doctor who was willing to prescribe me the product, the drug, before it was approved for hair loss uh, by the FDA, and uh, it worked for me. And I decided to basically write, my story, you know, write a book about it and try to sell it, and I was lucky enough to sell it to Simon & Schuster. And that's how I got wow. started. Well, that's wonderful. So, so are you still on the drug? Is this something that you have to take forever, or it's like brushing your teeth? If you stop brushing your teeth and flossing, you're you're going to get gum disease and gingivitis. So that's how I look at it. You know, I, I pop this pill. You know, it's it's prescribed for, as a daily dose, but I I I do something called intermittent therapy, where I take it. Um, you know, one you know larger dose once a week, and I've been on it for over twenty years, and.
Wow. You know, I've been lucky enough not to have any adverse side effects and um, shaved most of my hair. It's not 100%, but I would say, you know, for a man who's 48 years old, I still have a lot of hair. That's fabulous. So you've never had any, then, hair transplants or surgery? I've been lucky enough to avoid surgery. And, um, you know, especially back in the day when I was, you know, when, when, when I was dealing with the initial throes of hair loss, you know, surgery really wasn't an option. Even though there were plenty of doctors performing it, it just, people were really, and that's why hair transplantation today has a bad name, because of what was happening from, you know, 1959 up until, you know, like 1990. And even into the 90s, it was bad. There were only a handful of guys doing good work. But, you know, people still consider hair transplantation plugs, and that's not the case. I mean, you've probably seen dozens of hair transplants and not even realize that the person had a hair transplant because, you know, when it's done well today, it's so refined that it it really looks 100% natural. Yeah, and it and it was something that people didn't talk about. I I remember um, I dated a guy who was back in the oh god early 80s I think, and there was something strange about his scalp. And the story he told me was that he was in a car accident, and his scalp was all pulled back. And it was it was to cover up the fact that he actually had hair transplant surgery, which he told me later on. But yeah. initially, it was this whole big story to cover up the fact that he that he had this situation going on, and it wasn't the way it was done wasn't really pretty. So he had to cover well, yeah. that I mean, up I, with another I, story. Imagine, you know, as a guy in, in the society, to admit that we are concerned about our hair when we're not allowed to be, and then admit that we screwed up by having cosmetic surgery that went wrong. I mean, that's a, that's a tough thing, to, for, for, especially for a guy to bear and, uh, you know, to admit to. And I know guys who, I mean, uh, I, I can tell you stories of guys who have been, uh, you know, wearing hair pieces. They, they didn't tell their wives until five years into the marriage. Oh, gee. You know, I mean, How could you it's, not it's know? pretty insane stories. So the aesthetics medical industry and the hair loss industry um, has an overlap. There's a yeah. lot of hype. There's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of lotions and potions. There's counterfeit products. There's even now counterfeit lasers from China. Um, And there's many non-core doctors that are doing procedures that they're not necessarily skilled for because, as we know, the insurance reimbursements and Obamacare and a lot of doctors are getting into these different areas because they're lucrative and it's out of pocket. and I imagine so this is going on as well in the hair restoration industry, correct? Well, let, 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 let's be clear that, you know, any MD or any DO can perform what's called cosmetic surgery. And that's what correct. hair transplantation is. There, there is no need for any surgical training. Now, with that said, most of the great hair transplant surgeons uh, in this country are not board-certified surgeons. They are... Uh, for instance, you know, ER spet doctors or, you know, uh, internists who got into it or dermatologists who got into it that just have good hands and really became good at what they do. So in the surgical hair restoration side of cosmetic surgery, um, there really is no type of certification. Now, there's a board that was created by physicians um, that 
you know, they call the American Board of Hair Restoration Surgery. And I think that, you know, for the most part, I think that it, 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 it does do a service, to, you know, uh, for consumers to some degree. But a lot of the guys, especially the guys that started the board, were just grandfathered in. And some of the guys that started the board, unfortunately, were the guys that were doing plugs back in the day and that might have done a lot of damage, you know. So you, you really don't know who's doing what. But, yeah, I mean, you know, anyone can hang up a shingle as long as they're a physician and claim that they're a hair transplant specialist just like they can in cosmetic surgery. Well, I always tell my, my clients and my listeners that all plastic surgeons are cosmetic surgeons, but not all cosmetic surgeons are plastic surgeons. And that's, that's, that's well said, and, that, that, and that's the truth. And, you know, but the problem is, you know, because of the, uh, the cosmetic surgery marketing, and sadly even by some of the plastic surgeons out there because they feel pressured to market themselves in a way that's palatable to the, the general consumer because they're seeing, the consumer is seeing all these ads and these direct-to-consumer ads and all this stuff. You know, it's the marketing itself that I believe is making it even more difficult for consumers to make smart choices. And that holds true in hair restoration. I mean, today, there was, a, there, was a, there was a time when, when I started that it was a real mess, and then we were able to get to a point through the American Hair Loss Association, through the International Alliance of Hair Restoration Surgeons, where we created, and through the Ball Truth Show, created us a much safer place for consumers. However, manufacturers of certain devices have now come on the scene in the last, you know, six or seven years and are trying to automate the process. So the barrier to entry into hair restoration is, you know, all you have to do is, you know, be able to spend $4,000 to lease a piece of equipment a month, and you're doing hair transplants. So now people who are completely unskilled, who just want to expand their practice in, you know, their regular cosmetic surgery practice, are now claiming that they're doing hair transplants. And I'm seeing more and more people coming through the American Hair Loss Association who now believe, again, they're being disfigured or they're being ripped off. And that kind of wasn't happening uh, a lot five or six years ago. It, it was a much safer place. So what is the training of a hair restoration surgeon? And, and, and how can consumers know, like, are, are they going to a qualified, skilled doctor to have this done? Or because they think in their minds that a plastic surgeon is a plastic surgeon is a person to go to for everything having to do with their body, and it's just a consumer mindset. That's right, and 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 it's 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 more complicated than people think. But the first thing that the consumers need to know is that hair transplantation is a team effort. Basically, what they're doing is they're moving DHT resistant hair from the back of the scalp, which is programmed genetically to either grow for life, because you always see a person like with a donor wreath who are completely bald, you see hair around the back and the sides of the scalp, or programmed to, you know, to, to, to stick around for many, many years. Sometimes you see much older guys who have a thinning donor area, so, but they're in their 60s, 70s, 80s. You know. So if a young guy is considering having surgical hair restoration, that hair that's moved from that area is probably going to be relatively permanent. But you have to move thousands of those grafts in order to make a dent in your appearance. So in order to do that, it's not just one doctor sitting there, you know, cutting up your scalp and taking out these grafts and dissecting the grafts. You need an entire team. So not only does the doctor have to be skilled, but the team, the staff members, have to be skilled as well. 
there's really no trade school or or you know uh, actual you know certification for um, hair transplant technicians. Most of these women and sometimes guys they learn on the job. They're being paid like fifteen to twenty dollars an hour, and they're really the people who are in control of the end result of your hair transplant. Believe it or not. Now, as far as the physician is concerned, the doctor really has to understand. Depending on there's two two different procedures. One is a strip procedure where they basically take out a strip of scalp from the DHT resistant uh, hair bearing area in the back, and they suture that area together. They hand off that strip to technicians who then dissect that under magnification or microscopes, preferably. And then those hairs are then placed into recipient sites that the physician should be creating. Now, the physician needs to not only, and I'll talk about the other procedure in a second, but the physician doesn't just cut open the scalp and then suture it together. He or she has to know how to angle those grafts because your hair grows in different angles at different parts of your scalp. So there's so much involved. It's not like putting in a chin implant or putting in cheek implants or putting in uh, you know, breast implants. There's just so much to creating a natural-looking head of hair. And then there's another procedure called follicular unit extraction where they extract one graft at a time out of the back of the scalp instead of cutting a linear scar or making a linear scar and cutting out a piece of tissue and then suturing it. That takes just as much skill and in some cases even more skill, especially if it's being done by hand. So in order for, for a physician to be able to do this well, there has to be a significant amount of training. And since there's no real board certification in hair transplant surgery, it's hard for a consumer to really know who to go to. So that's why we created the American Hair Loss Association and the International Alliance of Hair Restoration Surgeons years ago. And, you know, it was my goal to really create a safe place for consumers to be able to um, learn about the procedure, learn about the surgeons who are performing the procedure, and also learn about the surgeon's staff and, you know, see images, see videos, have the opportunity to actually speak to patients. Um, because it's not just like seeing a, a diploma on the wall and saying, okay, this guy's got the credentials. It just doesn't work that way. I know so that was a mouthful, but it's a, it's a very complicated no, process. No, no, it, it's, it's so important. And, and so how do, how do you vet your surgeons for the um, association? Well, uh, initially, you know, until uh, there, was, there was one gold standard procedure, and that was follicular unit transplantation. So physicians had to perform follicular unit transplantation with the use of uh, microsco uh, microscopes to dissect the grafts. The staff had to be with the physician for a certain amount of time and working together, you know, as, as a team. And we had to speak with patients and see results. And then as the organization grew, physicians who were part of the organization had to sponsor other physicians in order for them to apply. And then we had to obviously, you know, go through the process and speak to more patients. Now, and it, as the years went on, we became kind of like the clearinghouse for complaints as well. So it became even easier for us. So if a physician applied to the organization, we would look in our database and say, oh, wait a second, we have 200 complaints from this guy. We can't even go through the application process. So basically a doctor has to have performed a minimum of 100 procedures uh, on his own, in his own clinic, in order to be part of, just to apply to the organization. And then uh, we have to really take a close look at their staff. Now, just to give you an example, we've had 
and this is going to sound like hyperbole, but it's the truth. There are about 1,500 uh, hair transplant surgeons in North America. Almost all of them have applied to the organization, and uh, we've accepted less than 70 in 12 years. Oh, wow. So, you know, what does that well, tell you about most really of the doctors who are performing hair restoration? Well, I think that's that's really wonderful because you're you're scrutinizing these doctors and 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 you're tr- you're keeping consumers well you're ho- you're trying to keep consumers safe and um, and educating them on who to go to see and and why. Well, but the truth is, and that's still you know this is cosmetic surgery, so there's still no guarantees. At least they're going to a safe place, but they still have to be aware that you know. If you're going under the knife, there's always a chance of complications. And when it comes to hair, there's always a possibility that just, you know, for whatever reason, the grass aren't going to take or they're going to have a widened scar or, you know, these are all possibilities. So, you know, my mantra is always surgery is a last resort when it comes to hair. Do whatever you can. You know, if if someone is dealing with hair loss, and and, uh, to me the, the first, you know, line of attack should be shave your head. Try it. See it. See if it looks good. See if you can live your life that way, because then you just, you're free. You're not stuck on medication. You're not stuck, you know, uh, having multiple surgeries. But if you can't deal with it, and I wasn't equipped to deal with it, and that's why I'm on medication, then there are real options, but there are only a handful. So what are we have a few minutes left, like four? <laughs> okay. Um, and and I and two things I wanted to ask you. One is what are those options, and two, what do consumers need to know when choosing a hair loss surgeon? Like okay. What are some uh, key questions? Okay. Options are simple. For men, you have Propecia, which is a, which is a five alpha reductase inhibitor, which which helps to lower DHT in the scalp. It it's been proven to work, but there are uh, possible side effects. So you have to talk to your doctor about that. You have minoxidil, which has been FDA-approved to work as well, shown to work, uh, but it works. It's kind of like a Band-Aid. It's, it, 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 it's kind of short-acting. It, it doesn't really work for most people for a long period of time. Uh, you have a drug called dutasteride, which is being prescribed off-label, which is a dual 5-alpha reductase inhibitor, which lowers even more DHT. A lot of guys seem to be getting good results with that. For women... There's really, uh, unfortunately, very little options. There's low-level laser light therapy, which is still questionable in, in, in our view, but some women are claiming that they're getting good response from it. There is minoxidil. Most doctors will prescribe minoxidil for men, 5% for women. Uh, some doctors are putting women on spironolactone or low androgen index birth control pills. But sadly, there's really nothing um, that works as effectively as finasteride or Propecia for women. So most women will continue the progression of their hair loss, and sadly, they're spending a lot of money on products and services that don't work. As far as um, choosing a doctor, just really make sure, ask your doctor how long they've been performing surgery. Make sure you can see really good before and after images from from the same angle and the same lighting. You know, video is, is, is preferable. See if you can speak with patients directly. Uh, it's best to do it uh, uh, via Skype so you can actually see the patient's hair and make sure that the staff has been with the doctor for at least a minimum, at least a year. You know, I mean, most good practices won't have a big turnover in staff. And I think that's a good start. 
And they can go on to the website for the American Hair Loss Association, right, and 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 research Absolutely. a doctor that way? They can go to AmericanHairLoss.org. They can go to IAHRS.org. And if they want to just, you know, talk to other hair loss sufferers, they can go to our message forum, which is BaldTruthTalk.com, and just learn, or they can, they can check out the show. Now, your show, um, when is, what, your show, they can listen to it any time online? Yeah, they can listen to it. They can go to theballtruth.com and they can uh, watch archives uh, anytime. They can uh, listen to it live on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Through, uh, through my site, through the GFQ network, through iTunes radio, Stitcher radio. Uh, we're usually on the, on the homepage of Daily Motion when we're live, and there's a lot of other resources we're on. So. Probably the easiest thing to do is just go to the website, theballtruth.com, and, and, and check it out. And Tuesday nights live at 8 p.m., and that's Pacific time, correct? That's 8 p.m. Eastern time. Oh, it's, it's Eastern time. Okay. Yeah, it's 5 p.m. Right. Pacific, That's good to know. Eastern. That's good to know. Well, yeah. Professor, this has, been, this has been eye-opening, and I thank you so much for being on the show. And again, listeners can go to www.theballtruth.com, and your books are available on Amazon? They're available on Amazon, and believe it or not, they're still in bookstores after all these oh, years. So. That's great. So they're, they're still in print. Yes. Kindle version? Uh, well, you know what? No, we, we didn't do that, and I guess, I guess I sh- I'm supposed to be doing a, uh, a new book, and we were going to do it when the new book comes out, but I just haven't had time. Okay, well, we'll look forward to your new book. I want to thank everyone for listening to the Nip Tuck Coach Radio, and if you've missed any episodes, they are available for download on iTunes, and please visit us on Facebook and Twitter at hashtag Nip Tuck Coach and hashtag Cosmetic Surgery. And again, if you'd like a copy of my ebook, please visit nip.coach.com for your free download, and have a beautiful weekend. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to the Nip Tuck Coach Radio. Join us next week for another exciting program about the world of cosmetic surgery and beauty. To learn more about Michelle Garber, go to www.niptuckcoach.com. To consult with Michelle directly, call 415-494-7211.